0: This podcast is sponsored by Equiland, a global fintech firm for the securities finance industry.
1: Welcome back to Pazila's Asia Securities Finance Monthly. I'm Matt MacArthur in Hong Kong. Thanks for joining us for the second episode of this podcast series. Each month, we'll bring you insights and perspective from around the region on the news and developments shaping the securities lending industry. Coming up on this episode, China's securities lending market continues to grow. We discuss the opportunities and obstacles for investors. And what exactly are the traits that make an excellent
2: securities lending trader? Resilience is one of them because as Tyson said, right, everyone's got to plan until you get punched in the face.
1: More boxing analogies and career advice from Morgan Stanley's Eric Champion a little later in the show. But first, Sean Bay, director at Citibank in Hong Kong, joins us for some recent market updates in Korea. Around the end of July, There was news out in Korea regarding improving the short-selling system. Now, the exact time frame is not known yet, but it's assumed the implementation period will be late Q3 or potentially Q4. Sean, can you break down some takeaways for us? I assume that means a higher scrutiny of audits in regards to timestamps, additional measures like short-sell ban carries over to the next day on declines of 5% or more. Any other potential future impacts?
3: So as you mentioned, we still don't have exact timeline, but they shared higher level at present. So everyone acknowledges those details. So item one, strengthening, oversight, and punishment, that's immediate change. So this is already a huge burden to PBI side. They used to compare timestamp on Comfort versus approved short sale ticket. But now they are looking at every details of trade level, Easy. Uh, cancellation or limit change amendment for all single trades and lines, and this is super painful. I'm not sure this is relevant to monitor naked show sale, but pretty sure it's hard to support for long term. And I believe local compliance desk already delivered this color to the regulators. But if they are asking going forward, PBSI will need to automate this process, I think. And item two, strengthening monitoring over stock lending transaction. ETA before Q4. If foreign investors borrow and hold the stock more than 90 trading days, they will need to report FSC and For Further details on this figure: 90 days. FSC announced average duration of open loan for Korea stock is around 70 days, so they are assuming open loan over 90 days is abnormal trade. I'm getting lots of questions, especially from agency lending side. And better to wait for further details, but given agency lending desk is not directly engaged to short-sell flow, so I think it will only limit to PB side. And lastly, item three, expand the application of our overheated short-sell stock designation. That ETI is Q3. This is more directly impacting to overall market participants. FSC provided figures on simulation and once they apply new changes for the last one year, we will have 15%-ish additional overheating names. And I think hedge funds should run some stats with new changes to measure impact on their own strategies.
1: Now, Sean, from a regulatory perspective, is it safe to say that Korea has some of the toughest rules in the globe? Or is that uh, hyperbole?
3: Yeah, so that's really good question, right? So regulation perspective, Korea is already very strict and complicated compared to other SBL markets. I think it's time to provide opportunity to learn high level of trading strategies with commercial sell to retail investors rather than tightening up the regulation.
1: Sean, excellent color as always. Thanks for the update. And if rules and regulations continue to change, we'll definitely call on you again. Following on from our first podcast on Korea, this month we're excited to bring together market experts to discuss securities lending in China, the roadblocks, the opportunities, and of course, the market nuances. We'll even have some legal analysis on the china lending market but first let's dive into china we're lucky to have with us two desk heads both have been in apac for at least a decade joining us is alex prince executive director ubs based out of singapore and clara Lowe, director barclays in hong kong i think it's important to start out with some context can we all agree that china from the PB side, the prime broker side, is the most active slash important market in Asia, maybe followed by roughly Hong Kong, Japan, Australia,
0: and Korea. Is that a fair assumption? I probably wouldn't go with that same ranking, but uh, definitely China's front and center. It's the engine of growth for APAC, and you know has the potential to be as big as the US, if not bigger over time. So absolutely, this is the focus for every bank that has a presence in the region, too big to ignore. Okay. Fair.
1: And one of the most important questions that I'm sure you're asked frequently is what will it take to get offshore beneficial owners to get comfortable with lending through the China Securities Finance Corporation or the CSFC platform? Clark, can we get your thoughts first?
4: Sure. So to begin with, CSFC is a central counterparty for all onshore QV transactions. So I would say to get offshore beneficial owner to be comfortable or perhaps I would say more willing to lend. CSFC may need to allow more flexibility in their SBL fee schedule and perhaps the collateral arrangement. Because the current setup is a fixed foreign lending fee for all the main board listed names, depending on the tenor of the transactions, I would suggest the SBL fee should be market-driven instead of a fixed rate, which is around 1.5 to 2% annualized. And also the collateral arrangement is not bilateral, which is kept at CSFC. I don't think this arrangement is very attractive to offshore beneficial owner in terms of the return versus the risk they're taking.
0: Alex, give additional comments on that. Yeah, look, I think you know that's exactly right. That that the biggest limitation for offshore investors is really uh, the collateral piece and the exposure that they end up having onshore. I mean, regardless of the fact that CSFC will, you know, safe keep those assets and 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 ensure that they're held for the benefit of the beneficial owner. The fact of the matter is those assets are onshore in China, subject to Chinese law, and I don't think we've seen practically what happens in an event of default scenario where one counterparty is offshore through the CSFC. And I think people are waiting to see what happens and how their exposures will be treated in in that regard in such an event. So I think... Many beneficial owners are waiting on the sidelines to see how that evolves over time. I think ultimately what could be a solution would be for China to follow the, the model in Korea or Taiwan, where they have the customized or negotiated transactions, where collateral can be exchanged bilaterally and the actual lending of the stock will still flow through the CSFC.
1: Yeah, I'm curious on the evolution. Uh, now, this might seem elementary to you, but just walk the audience through the difference between QF shares compared to Connect shares.
0: And what is the challenging part of sourcing each? You know, look, each channel has its benefits and drawbacks from a trading perspective. And I think ultimately what we have seen is that, you know, different investment strategies skew towards a particular offering. I guess as a quick summary on the QFI side, you know, obviously you have a larger tradable universe as well as you have access to, to primary issuance. So if you want to get involved in IPOs or blocks or placements, you have to trade through, uh, through the onshore model. And then there's no issues with the holiday calendar that we know exists uh, on Connect, which is following, you know, Hong Kong holiday calendar. That being said, there are benefits to trading directly on Connect, right? as opposed to you know going onshore. You know, for participants, there's the, we don't have to pre fund, right? There's a lack of a pre funding requirement. Ultimately, all the assets are are held offshore through CCAFs, which people are very comfortable with. And I think generally, offshore investors, you know, have been active in Hong Kong for many years, and, and they're very comfortable with the rules and regulations of Hong Kong Exchange and those would government govern all the activity. From the exchange participants and clearing participants, which you know provides a lot of comfort to to investors who may not be in the region and may not be comfortable with the onshore legal risks and exposures. Yeah, no
1: doubt. Now, Clara, just as a quick follow up, are QF shares and Connect shares fungible?
4: No, they, they are not. So, like if you want to short sell Connect shares, you will have to arrange borrow for the Connect shares, and like vice versa, if you want to short sell QF, of course, you will have to arrange onshore uh, a QF borrow.
1: Okay, that that makes sense. And and how is the growth of Connect shares? How, how's it going? As they have less than onshore, meaning QF has roughly what a fraction of the Connect names, and are ETFs included in that program?
4: I think it is definitely growing in a uh, right direction. In June this year, Hong Kong Exchange, Shanghai Exchange, and Shenzhen Exchange agreed to put fifty-three China ETF in the Connect program, which is a good move to allow for an investor to have easier access to um, ETF in in China.
1: Yeah, that's that's uh super helpful. A- Alex any additional thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, look, I think
4: you know as with many access
0: products I mean, like connect um, you know there's prescriptive parameters for inclusion. And really, that's to ensure that investors can get access to high-quality companies onshore with established track records, but at the same time, protecting them from the downsides of speculative investments. And you have to remember that this is the connect scheme. It goes both ways, northbound and southbound. So really at the heart of this, I would say, is probably the retail investor in China who may want to get access offshore. So there are, there are a lot of controls around which companies are included, the parameters by which they're eligible. But I think what we've seen is really... Over time, incrementally, there's been improved access. And we've mentioned the ETFs uh, most recently in, in June of, of this year. But they've also added, you know, Chinext and Starboard constituents to institutional professional investors. So I think over time, we will see a convergence of the offering between the two channels. But again, it's going to be very measured, very controlled to ensure that the system is fair across both channels, northbound, southbound. And at heart, the investor protections are in place.
1: So, Alex, I know you mentioned some previous nuggets before, and I realize we don't have a crystal ball. But what do the next five years look like for lending in China, not only with onshore securities lenders, but offshore?
0: Yeah, it's a very good question, Matt. Um, I think what we've observed so far are really a series of steps to harmonize the two products structurally, the Starboard, the ETF, the addition of those products into Connect, as well as most recently, the reduction in the number of Connect holidays. And also from the SBL angle, right, there's newer products that are operating under a more flexible model, which is really more closely aligned with international norms. So for example, if you want to engage in SBL onshore for ChinaX and Starboard names, the rate and tenor of that transaction can be negotiated bilaterally, uh, which is very much the way we transact today in other markets. And additionally, you know, we've seen the Hong Kong Exchange launch some new products to further develop the offshore China offering through things like the addition of MSCIA 50 index futures, the listing of levered and inverse ETFs with China A share underlyings. So fundamentally, the entire ecosystem will continue to grow and consolidate through these channels, uh, which really, they're all positive developments for the future lending landscape. I guess what I would say is we kind of know from previous experience that progress in the space is really going to be carefully managed to avoid any significant disruption to the current trading environment and ecosystem. But ultimately, the trajectory is clear. I mean, China is going to continue to open up. And offshore lenders who have positioned themselves appropriately will stand to benefit significantly. But it's really important that we all continue to be engaged and provide feedback on what works and doesn't work for us from an offshore perspective to really ensure that our concerns are taken into consideration as we move forward. Yeah, that was very comprehensive.
1: Clara, any additional thoughts that we might have missed or that you want to expand on?
4: I may say something more from what I see from the onshore markets. Because with the recent launch of CSI 1000 index futures onshore, we could see that uh, regulatory bodies are encouraging more hedging channels. And with that, it's always benefit to have more means of hedging, such as if they could, easing or opening up the SBN market, that would definitely be creating a constructive growth in the financial market in the long long run. And um, what I see is that the onshore, ETF market is also expanding quickly. What we see is that a lot of ETF issuer, for example, like for mutual funds like BlackRock Fidelity, they're establishing independent entity in China as well. With that, it could be a stable inventory source from the component of ETF from the issuer. So I guess in long run, even the onshore Lending market will be uh, growing exponentially.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. The ability to trade on the short side as a foreigner presents a different set of challenges compared to onshore. What do you think are the main challenges faced by onshore participants?
4: Well, I would say that could do to um, regulatory matters at first. For example, the uptick rules that we all know that it does not only apply to borrower position, but also applies to outstanding long position under the same borrower's name on the same securities. This, this setup really make investor difficult to manage the position? Because engaging short sale meaning that that could impact how they trade their outstanding position. I guess similar to Hong Kong Exchange where they have an uptake rule mechanism to prevent participants from breaching the rule. It would definitely help if onshore exchange can offer similar mechanism. Separately, I also think it is a PR public relation problem. Matters as in China is one of the largest emerging market in MSCI with weighting over 20%. Inevitably, the respective acceptance of SBL or short selling by onshore, like domestic retail investor, is lesser. So engaging in short selling or SBL is always being blamed when there's market correction. So I believe this evolution takes time, similar to markets like um, Korea and Taiwan.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point, Uh, notably with Korea and alex the the challenges slash obstacles for offshore counterparties to borrow and lend connect shares are difficult do you mind just explaining a few of them
0: sure i guess you know some of the limitations and and, and issues that that people have are not uh unique to connect per se but exist in QFI in as well you know and those are as we you know, as has been alluded to the uptick rule uh, which is challenging, and, and also you know the number of sediment cycles and the batches at which they, they operate and the knock-on effect for a recall in that scenario and the times required to manage that position. And those are certainly challenges that exist across both lines and, and, and continue to this day. But I would say most significant limitation for Connect specifically is really the provision that Connect SBL is only open to exchange participants and qualified institutions. Now, to be more specific, That provision states that the activity must be done on a principal basis as well, which precludes any involvement from agent lenders uh, in this process. And as we know, agent lenders are a significant proportion of the liquidity and access that we have in, in, in other markets in APAC. So effectively, what that rule has done, it's really restricted the universe of participants, both on the lending side and the borrowing side. So on the borrowing side, obviously, the borrower has to have the principal trading books on the Hong Kong entity, which you know, the majority of, of global investment banks don't carry that. And on the lending side, it's really principal lenders only. So you'd actually have to have the beneficial owner managing it on their own behalf rather than through an agent, uh, which is really, frankly, a, a big challenge and a big uplift. Uh, and, and I would say most investors are not really prepared to invest that level of commitment into a single market.
1: Well, Alex and Clara, that was very comprehensive, a real masterclass in China. No doubt we're going to need your expertise and advice in the not too distant future. I hope you don't mind if we call on you again. And thanks again for joining us and hope to talk to you soon. From time to time, we'll try to incorporate non-traders into this podcast, which will help to add a different perspective. Our first guest speaker is Kimmy Liu, lead counsel for the Financial Regulatory Group of He Ping Law Firm. Kimmy has previously worked at both Clifford Chance and Morgan Stanley and has experience on advising clients on financial market transactions, including SBL, derivatives, repos and structured products, as well as on the financial regulatory matters on access and operations within China. Kimmy has also provided input into the National People's Congress Standing Committee Working Group, on drafting of the futures and derivatives law that came into effect in August 2022, Kimmy, it's great to have you. Well, Hung Kaosheng, pleasure. Okay, thanks so much, Matt, for the introduction. Great pleasure to be here. What are the What's the impact of the futures and derivative law, or the FDL, and China turning on netting for derivatives?
5: The netting. Uh, definitely um, marks a very significant step in the China market. For international banks, definitely they can um, release a lot of regulatory capital if they turn on netting in China. And this can also mean that for Chinese counterparties, they are able to offer better pricing and better prices. All of this make quite exciting for, for the market. On the legal side, um, based on the netting, we will see a lot of other developments as well. For example, the QCCP status for clearing house, the clean status for the uh, future clearing service provided to Chinese clients, and also the clean um, netting status for other financial market transactions like um, security borrowing and lending, like repos, everything now become possible. I think in the initial stage, people's focus may be more on the OTC derivatives to turn on netting, as I described. But since August 1st, the effective date has passed, and people are almost kind of there for the netting status for OTC derivatives, for the next step, we will see people allocate more efforts to all of the uh, other matters, as I mentioned, then uh, in particular for other financial market transactions, then the issue as to whether they can benefit from the netting status the netting protection granted by the futures and derivatives law is a hot topic at this moment so also the futures and derivatives law only talks about derivatives and the futures it can also provide protection to other financial market transactions um this also need to be read together with another important regulatory development that is the china banking and insurance regulators circular last year which was issued with a QA uh, with commentary from Supreme People's Court. I think the status, the position from the um, Supreme People's Court is very clear that for uh, financial market transactions, um, they're comfortable with the set-off or netting arrangement. So it's just a matter of how Banks and market players will um, just interpret uh, all of this development together to come to a conclusion. And we have seen quite positive and active discussions on this topic in the market already. But the market probably will need some more time to digest and to have visible uh, output. Yeah, let me pull on that string a little bit, Kimmy. When
1: you said the FDL, could that be extended to SBL or securities borrowing and lending? And would you have a potential time frame? Maybe within the next year.
5: Yeah. So. Uh, for this scope, uh, futures and derivatives law, uh, technically speaking, only covers OTC derivatives and futures, but not SBL technically. Uh, but as I mentioned, it is important in the sense that in, it introduced the concept of single agreement and close netting. And on the other hand, um, at a kind of judicial guidance level, the Supreme People's Court already mentioned its confirmation of uh the application of netting for financial market transactions which actually is broader although the supreme people's court guidance it is not a formal legislation but when it work together with the uh, future derivatives rule i think there are already quite strong comfort that the protection can be extended to cover sbl in terms of timing actually both piece of legislation and regulations already effective so The issue is more how people want to complete the interpretation and put this into formal kind of analysis so that they can rely on internally to uh, turn on netting for SBL. But I think given the joint efforts in the market, uh, very likely that people can have positive kind of developments in the coming year. Uh, But one thing um, I would like to mention is that given the analysis is not as straightforward as derivatives, as I mentioned, because for derivatives, they can just rely on the FDL without anything more than Given this complexity, I think the only thing the market need to pay attention to is to avoid generating too many different views. Otherwise, the kind of efforts in the market may um, need to be synchronized before we can have a positive conclusion. Yeah, I
1: think you bring up a great point. The synchronicity of it would hopefully is where PASLA comes in uh, and try to lay the foundation for one main road. Uh, well, Kimmy, that's fantastic. Thank you for joining us. That was very in-depth and we might have to call on you in the, in the near future to clarify some additional language. Again, thanks, and hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Our next guest needs no introduction to the Hong Kong audience. He's the absolute definition of a stock loan trader. Tireless, hungrier than a wolf and endlessly knowledgeable on all APAC markets. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce a true legend of the market, Eric Champy, Director,
2: Morgan Stanley Hong Kong. Welcome, Mon Ami. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. I mean, a lot of uh, adjectives. I'm blushing already.
1: <laughs> Those might be the only nice things I've ever said about you, but they're all true. Now, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself, your career arc, and how back in 1991 did you get into securities lending?
2: So, by the way, uh, that was just like it in 1992. No, I'm not that old, obviously. Matt is uh, already cracking some jokes to start the interview, which I was expecting. Uh, no, I started uh, in 2001 um, and I started at Subgen, uh doing stock lending. I was on the trading side slash lending side, supply side. Uh, spent a few years over there and I was based in Paris originally. Then I moved to Dresden in 2004. Uh, spent a couple of years, moved to, at the time, what was uh, Merlinch, which became Bank of America Merlinch, as you guys would know. Stayed there until uh, 2011, moved to Tokyo. Uh, at that time, spent a year or so in Tokyo, then moved to Hong Kong a few years uh, with Baman, and then I moved to Morgan Stanley. I've been in Morgan Stanley for almost eight years now. And I transitioned in the same time, uh, obviously, different countries, but see as a job, Since I started my career on the supply side, and I'm now on the distribution side.
1: Now, you currently work on the demand side of stock loan, meaning you speak directly to the hedge funds. In a prior life, you were on my side of the street, the supply side. What are the differences in job
2: dynamics? When it comes to relationships, there's on both sides. There's a lot of similarity there. Uh, I would say probably one of the differences on the demand side is probably a bit less uh, forgiving sometimes, because obviously you do have different types of clients, sometimes it could be very transactional, you have to adapt, but that's also part of the fun and part of the job. I would say there's no doubt about that. But I think in order to be good at your job on the distribution side, uh, you need to be good on the supply side and know what's going on, because to me, the two sides are complementary and equally important. Yeah, that makes sense. Um,
1: now, my favorite question that I ask all the luminaries such as yourself that join me is what are some traits that make an excellent securities
2: lending trader? So I would say there's quite a few, right? So uh, resilience is one of them because let's be honest, I think as Tyson said, right, everyone's got to plan until you get punched in the face. And in our jobs, we get punched in the face. And often, right, it's about not taking it personally, getting back on your feet and, you know, working out again, right? So that's going to happen. Resilience is one. Team spirit is obviously something that is extremely important. Working really great in connectivity with different parts of the firm, different kind of entities as well, different type of clients. And at the same time, I think communication is extremely important because escalation is key in our business because, you know, issues will happen and it does happen because when you push your business to the limit, it does happen. You need to make sure to communicate. So I think all these elements are extremely important and obviously grit and persistence as well are extremely important in terms of some of the characteristics.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I've always felt somebody who senses the urgency too, but yeah, I love how you mentioned resilience and having kind of thick skin. That's uh, underrated. Now, since you've joined the securities lending world, how much has technology changed our industry
2: and have we lost a little human touch? That's an interesting question. Uh, I would say it has changed obviously a lot, right? Uh, Big data, artificial intelligence, uh, electronification of the business when you see that. You know, obviously, third party platform, electronic platform are making 90, 95 percent of the trade. But what is interesting uh, to notice is most of the real added value trades or high generating alpha trade are still done bilaterally, based on relationship. But communication is key, right? Uh, And discussion is key and negotiation is key. So while the business has grown, a lot of the vanilla flow is done electronically, but anything which is high alpha is still done using communication and using relationships. So I think that's a trade which is important in our business uh, and will remain for the years to come.
1: Yeah, hopefully until we at least get out of the industry and retire. Maybe then it will be completely automated. Now, my last question is geared to all the new joiners in the market. It's a very quick story, but I'm hoping you can put a bow on the end of it. My first job out of college was on a trading desk at Instinet in downtown New York as a trading assistant. My first day, hell, my first hour, the MD of the trading floor, his name was Seth Myers. It might as well have been Oscar Meyer to me. I didn't have a clue who he was. And he was from the deep South, New Orleans, I think. In his very Forrest Gump, Southern draw, he said, son, I'm sure you'll be very prosperous in your financial career, but right now you're lower than whales I would kindly like you to do me three favors show up keep up and shut up and that was the only time he ever spoke to me now hopefully you have a more positive spin for the listeners on career advice what pearls of
2: wisdom would you give anyone starting out their securities lending career yeah that's uh that that's also a good one so i wish someone had given me these advices so i think to me the one value that we have and we keep alongside our career is our reputation right so doesn't matter which firm you're working for, people trust you, know your values and how you approach the business, right? So be true and genuine to yourself and to people you're dealing with. I think it's, it's very, very important. This market is small. People know about the good things and the bad things happening up, right? So your value is what people think of you. The thing is obviously don't give up in terms of what you want to do, because always try, right? If you are looking to achieve something, to change you know slightly what kind of you know job you're into or specialty or anything market you want to cover whatever just go for it and also make choices that make sense in the long term as well don't look only at short-term gain look at you know long term what makes sense for you and where you want to get to That's perfect, Eric. I think you actually you blew those footsteps, too, because dealing with you,
1: it's your reputation precedes you. And uh, it's always been a pleasure to interact with you. That was exceptional as expected, Eric. Thank you again for your time. And that wraps up this week's Legend of the Market segment. Our only ask to the listener is you are our lifeline. Market feedback of any kind helps. Comments, suggestions on future topics, inquiries, they're all welcomed please reach us at podcast at paslaonline.com. Join us next month for more fresh perspective from the securities finance industry. I'm Matt MacArthur in Hong Kong. We'll see you on the next episode of Asia Securities Finance Monthly.
0: This podcast was sponsored by Equilend, a global
5: fintech firm for the securities finance industry.